Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Sorry, I'm just looking out into the garden. The dog's attacking a fly. Hello, it's me, William Young. Yoo-hoo! I'm wearing... You see my pants, Amy, actually? When I say pants, I'm using the American term. They're very kind of those hippie ones, you know? Sort of patchwork pants for the listener. You can't see them. They've got sort of raised edge around the patches. Bought them on Amazon. So we're talking to Jo Stubbley again. We spoke to her last year on trauma. Uh, Jo Stubbley is the consultant psychiatrist in psychotherapy at the Tavistock Clinic. She's really, really cool, actually. I forgot how much I liked talking to her. Well, actually, no, I didn't forget. I didn't remember that it was so much of a pleasure, and it really is a pleasure. She's a very, very cool person. She puts things very succinctly. Uh, so we talk about complex PTSD, and I start with asking, really, about what post-traumatic stress disorder is. One of the things that I suspect we might end up talking about is whether we talk about these things as disorders or maybe we talk about it more as complex trauma or trauma. But I think there is something about having an understanding of what these diagnostic kind of ideas are as a starting point, and then we can kind of move a bit further along. But post-traumatic stress disorder is essentially a condition that comes out of usually a single episode of trauma, either as a child or an adult. And for some reason, and it's often, you know, something to think about as to why there is more risks for certain people than others. For some reason, for some people, a traumatic experience leads to the particular symptoms that I'm going to describe. And there's kind of four main categories if we talk about the American way of thinking about PTSD. The first is that you have what's called the hyperarousal symptoms. These are the things that most people think about in terms of fight flight. It's the body getting ready for action. So it comes across in PTSD as irritability, feeling anxious, agitated, what they call a kind of exaggerated startle. You know, if, if you hear a small noise rather than just turning to look, you jump to the ceiling. Often insomnia, difficulty concentrating. So that's the kind of first bit, that hyperarousal bit. Second bit is what we call the re-experiencing or reliving symptoms. And those are the things that people often think about when they think about PTSD, flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive images, or sometimes bodily sensations. These are all either sort of fully re-experiencing the memory, the trauma, or sometimes it's fragmented and it's just bits of things coming into the mind or the body. And these get triggered by certain things in the environment, usually to do with our senses. Probably the commonest one is smell. And then people are pushed into kind of having that whole reliving of the trauma as though it's happening now. So you can kind of see if you've got the hyperarousal, so you're going to be kind of really hyped up and sort of responding to any potential threat in the environment all the time. 
and you've got this reliving that might get triggered at any moment, the third category makes a lot of sense because it's about avoidance. People kind of try really hard not to get triggered, try really hard not to kind of be startled or to have a sense of threat. So they shut themselves down. They often shut their lives down. They don't do things that might kind of cause any problems. And they shut down emotionally. So there's often a lot of emotional numbing. And I think if you look at those first three, the fourth, which isn't included in the European way of thinking about PTSD, but I think it makes sense, is that people also have changes in their thoughts and mood. So their mood will often be low. They'll feel like there isn't necessarily a sense of future ahead of them. They might have quite negative thoughts around guilt and blame and self-blame. And all of these things have to be present for at least a month after a trauma has happened for them to be called post-traumatic stress disorder. Because before then, a lot of it is kind of an understandable response to a traumatic event, which will settle over time. So that's a rather long-winded answer to your question, but I hope it helps to give that context. No, I thought it was a, actually a very succinct answer. Um, <laughs> okay. And it's interesting hearing those sort of four things. I mean, I know you say in Europe there's only three. And I guess the thing is that with a sort of one-off traumatic event is the idea that the reaction will be sort of instantaneous after that trauma and then last for a month or longer. So I think the question of time is a really good one. So for some people, they will have that traumatic experience and they'll have the symptoms for, you know, say two or three weeks and then it will settle and no one would ever talk about them having a disorder. For some people, it just won't settle. They'll stay at that high level following the trauma. Other people, it might kind of not be much symptoms, first of all, and it might only be later on. Sometimes you get quite a delayed onset. So we end up sometimes seeing people who've had something else that might be quite small from a kind of outward perspective happens. And all of the previous symptoms from the episode that happened maybe five years ago, even 20 years ago, comes back full force. So it can be a very variable journey as to when it really hits for people. I mean, that certainly happened for me, but I would say I probably got complex PTSD. But, you know, with my childhood trauma, that was buried until I was in my 30s. Yeah, and that's often what happens. And I think there is something really important about this kind of way in which we have to unpick PTSD and complex PTSD. Because the number one risk factor for developing PTSD is having earlier history of trauma. So you might already have a predisposition to getting a more significant response to a trauma happening in adulthood if you've had a lot of childhood trauma, or you might have developed complex PTSD and then another traumatic thing comes on on top and then you're really getting all the symptoms. But you can hear already it's a big overlap Mm. because that number one thing around is that If you've had early trauma, then you are potentially more vulnerable to those difficulties coming back or causing problems when you're an adult. So moving on from, well, actually, no, let's let's talk about this quickly before we go into complex PTSD. Mm. I think it's interesting that you brought up the word disorder because I have quite a problem with that word because it sort of seems to come with perhaps a sort of connotation of shame. Yeah. 
I'm so pleased you've said that because, I mean, you're sitting here talking to someone who was a psychiatrist. So this was what I got trained in. But I have felt the more I've done work in the trauma field, the more uncomfortable I have felt around the idea of telling people you have a disorder, there's something wrong with you. And I remember when we did our first one, we talked a tiny bit about this in terms of some of the alternatives that are starting to come around in the system that are about saying, it's not what's wrong with you, it's about what's happened to you. So one mm. of those was the power threat meaning framework. Mm. And I think it's absolutely spot on that it's about shame. Because if you're already feeling shame, which is highly likely if there's been childhood trauma, to feel that now there's something wrong with you that's going to require a diagnosis and then you're going to have to have, you know, probably medication and treatment and people might tell you that they don't know whether you'll ever get better from this, you might have to live with it. It doesn't capture resilience and strength and post-traumatic growth and the individual responses that people have to trauma. It just can make you feel like, okay, I always thought there was something wrong with me and now I know there is. Mm. No, I remember us talking about that. And actually, I think it's so interesting sometimes when I'm thinking and talking and discussing on human condition, how a phrase can just change something on how we see ourselves, you know, and, yeah. and the thinking about not what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you, what's been done to you, you know, what it's a bit of a game changer but it's just a different way yeah. of voicing things so it's nice to sort of reiterate that I think and how does complex PTSD come about okay I wonder whether I might start this one by telling you a little bit of history about how we got to the term of complex trauma that led to yeah. complex PTSD so there was this American psychiatrist who was a bit of a trauma expert you might have heard of her called Judith Herman Oh, yes. And she was working in the 80s in a similar, I think actually in the same hospital to Bessel van der Kolk. But Herman was working with a number of traumatized groups. One of them were Vietnam veterans. The other group were adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And the third group were uh, survivors of interpersonal domestic violence. You know, she was looking at three different groups and thinking, Yes, a lot of them have got the PTSD symptoms that we've just talked about, but they've also got a whole lot of other stuff going on here that feels like there's enough of it going on that we might be looking at something that they have in common. So she called it complex trauma. And what she was seeing was that there were a lot of problems or difficulties or location of the trauma in the body. There was a lot of people dissociating and we can talk a little bit more about what that word means although I know you've covered it before so there was dissociation there was body symptoms people had a lot of trouble managing their mood states they would feel kind of really extreme in their moods or would shut down in moods and they also had a lot of difficulties in their relationships and she particularly picked up that they might end up sort of having repetitions of previous traumatic events occurring in current relationships. And she put all of that together and said, okay, let's call this complex trauma, the PTSD symptoms and these other things that I've described. For some reason, and it might link to the conversation we were just having, it has taken over 30 years to get complex PTSD into the psychiatric classifications. 
it's almost like the psychiatrist didn't really want to look at the importance of trauma in all of this. But we finally have it now. And it's in the European one. And it's got exactly as Herman talked about it. But they sort of say all those PTSD symptoms, so the hyperarousal, the reliving and the avoidance. And then there's the problems with mood. There's difficulties with what they call self-concept. So they talk about people having things like a low self-worth, feeling a lot of guilt, shame, self-blame, those kind of things being really pervasive. And then the third bit that they talk about, again, is the problems with relationships. And quite often what they were describing is that it's this sort of shutting down and feeling that relationships are too problematic. So it's it's really hard to be able to negotiate them. And some of those problems are often around that repetition of the trauma. So it's a, a kind of particular description of those sort of difficulties that are held within someone's way of being, their personality, that cause ongoing problems. That makes sense? Yeah. And my right in thinking that now this this could be wrong that you're more likely to get complex trauma if you've had persistent traumatic experiences rather than a one-off I mean that makes it maybe sound cleaner than it is you're absolutely right and that's part of what Herman picked up she said that one of the really central things is that you can't get away there's a sort of essential experience of captivity in the trauma so it's either persistent or chronic or repetitive and of course, you know, one place that you often can't get away if there's trauma happening is as a child. You're kind of captive in that family quite often until someone else might see that that's going on or war experiences. So the Vietnam veterans she looked at or quite often, you know, people who are survivors of domestic violence. There's a sense in which it is really difficult to get away. So we see it as well with people who've had experiences where they've become asylum seekers and refugees, survivors of torture, you know, various ways in which that centrality of captivity, you cannot escape what's happening. And the central experience, which we've talked about before with trauma, being one of helplessness. Mm. And does it get, well, this is what I found in my own experience, so it's a bit of a leading question, because I know what my own answer would be to that. But how easy is it to get diagnosed and does it get misdiagnosed? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think you do know the answer to it. It yeah. is so easy to get misdiagnosed or not seen. And I think it links back to some of the things that we were talking about. If no one asks what's happened to you, if the person that's seeing you isn't thinking trauma, then... They might be much more thinking symptoms. So, oh, okay, so your mood is all over the place. You're really struggling with day-to-day -day life. You don't feel like you've got much of a future and, you you know, your mood feels a bit low sometimes or other times you're kind of, you know, really hyperactive and you don't like being around people. That sounds like it could be something like bipolar disorder. But, of course, if you're asking, yeah, but what's happened in your life? What's been going on with you? How, how do you see all of that? you start to pick up, there's a, a really strong experience of trauma here. And I think part of why this is such a good question is that we all turn away from trauma. The kind of natural human response to hearing about terrible things is to say that can't be true. That didn't happen. 
and you know we switch off the news or we stop listening to that or we don't want to hear about it and I think that's come into the mental health system as well you know it's a kind of here's a condition these are the symptoms let's get this sorted right we're fine and we don't want to know that terrible things happen to people often very vulnerable people it's often very tied in with oppression with poor community experiences with adverse childhood experiences are all kind of interconnected in a way that maybe makes all of us feel a bit helpless. It's really interesting you bring that up because I also wonder if people don't want to see it in themselves because I mean and we've discussed this before the, the way of using trauma as a model of how to see people's lives their inner world what's going on in their outer world and you know, how to heal from that if people don't want to approach help through any of that area because it might be too triggering for them. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of amazing defences that we have to not see trauma in ourselves. You know, from the moment that the trauma happens, something like dissociation occurring where you are kind of taken away from what's going on at the time and then the experience gets compartmentalised in your brain so you don't think about it. And that's just one of many defenses. We also use denial. You know, it didn't happen to me. It wasn't really that bad. It was okay. I've survived, so why should I think about it? Mm. It's a a normal human response to not want to see these things. And I think it takes a lot of courage to kind of stop and look and say, okay, this did happen to me and it has had a big impact. I wonder if, because I know that, borderline personality disorders been a sort of big thing in the last 10 years but you see I'm going to stick my neck out and say that I feel people get more diagnosed with that than perhaps they should be that's my and by the way I've been diagnosed with it but I just it doesn't it's never sat well with me and I mm. you know when I look at my experiences look at my symptoms over the years it never sits as well as it does with you know for me personally and yeah. I know I know that borderline personality disorder is such a is a sort of has been a thing but let me stick my neck out too and the first thing I want to say is I'm sorry you got diagnosed with that because I think the concept of telling someone that their personality is disordered is absolutely wrong Mm, yeah it's a weird phrase it's terrible absolutely terrible why would we say that to someone and what does that do in terms of potentially re-traumatizing someone who has already felt helpless and vulnerable and ashamed and suddenly now you're being told again there's something that's wrong deep inside you we've done an episode on it and the person who's done it we've spoken to a couple of times and she is brilliant dr chetna kang she's brilliant we would probably disagree you know and that's fine you're allowed Mm. to disagree Mm. aren't you you, yeah you know the goal is you want to help people and we, we don't have to all agree but you're right because the invalidation when someone says, well, this is what you've got and this is why you're acting like that, it can be more damaging. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I am so pleased that complex PTSD got into the psychiatric classification because we can sit here and say people shouldn't talk about disorders, but the reality is that's how the mental health system is set up. But thank God we've now got an alternative that many people are doing what you're doing of thinking, these diagnoses I got before, they don't feel right to me. And maybe this one sits better. 
you know, we might want to say, well, but let's not do any of them. But if we can find one that sits better, then maybe that is something about being able to explore things from a different perspective. And the reality is there is a huge survivor movement that is doing this. There's one that's called Drop the Disorder. And there's another called Mad in America. And they are people who are saying these kinds of diagnoses have re-traumatized and mm. have made people feel more shame. And that's a real problem. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, I mean, I guess it brings us into the sort of third area of the conversation, if you if you will. You know, the first thing is, what is it? How does it come about? And then, you know, how can people heal from it or look to heal from it? And medication never did anything for any of my it, it never touched my hypervigilance I think it very possibly got made even worse or even caused my disassociation you know and that was really really bad I mean you know that mm. went on for years and since I've been off it I certainly have not gone backwards I've never been as well as I have been since I first sort of for want of a better phrase came down with complex PTSD or it all rose up to the surface for me and that's got to say something Look, and I think, you know, well done you for getting off the medication, because part of what's been coming out recently is how difficult it can be to withdraw from this medication. Yeah, it and it took me three years. Oh, I, and, you know, the, the difficulty we often see with people that come to our service is that they have been on these medications sometimes for years and years, and then they don't even know is it the medication or is it what's happened to me? Or if I'm starting to come off, is it withdrawals? No one's sort of ever said to them, don't stay on this forever. You need to come off it. You need to get help to come off it. Mm. So we are creating more problems for people unnecessarily. And I'm really pleased that this, this is the kind of conversation that's starting to happen more now in the mainstream of having to think, is it right that so many people in our society you're on antidepressant medications is it right that that's the first line treatment that you get if you go to the gp and say you're feeling low i'm not an expert i know lots of people and people who are listening to this who would have benefited from medication and honestly i yeah i couldn't be happier for them i really couldn't and i think brilliant what i will say though and i do think this is a fact that no medication can heal any trauma absolutely it might aid some of the symptoms Mm. it might ease some things because you know you've mentioned a couple of times and maybe maybe you could say a little bit about it you've mentioned a couple of times about feeling things in the body 
But, you know, actually, sometimes meds, you know, they'll just go for certain receptors, but this stuff isn't even coming from there. But I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit, because I've done a lot of body work, so I, and I'm very in tune with my body, but maybe people might not know what that is. Very happy to. And I think one of the things I'll just say about that whole receptor stuff, there's been a really good review paper that has completely challenged and disproved the notion that depression is about neurotransmitter problems. There's no evidence of that. And I think it links to what we're talking about, which is things that have happened to us are a part of what we then have to struggle with. And if we go to complex trauma and are thinking about the body, one of the difficulties I think is that there is so much of trauma that gets located in the body. And part of that is linked to what we were just saying, that trauma is really difficult to think about and acknowledge. So we get it out of our minds by all kinds of different defenses and it gets located instead in our bodies. Some of that is just the kind of natural fight, flight, freeze reactions that go on. So when you were talking about your hypervigilance, that's all sitting in there. So we might just be talking about noticing that your heart is racing almost all the time or you're struggling to have deep breaths or you're just feeling constantly tense and anxious. That's all that trauma sitting in there as you're getting reactivated all the time. But you're also likely to have those reliving, the re-experiencing symptoms will be sitting in the body. If we think about what happens with traumatic experiences they don't get processed in the usual way. So they don't go into our normal narrative story of who we are. We haven't got the words for them. And I think that's part of why it sort of ends up being that these instead go into a constantly evolving presence, like time stands still. And with those triggers, our body then is back in the trauma. So for some people, that might be that they just they feel something. They might not even have the image, but they feel something like the kick in the stomach or the hands on their arms or something that is back to that body memory that they then are re-experiencing and it's just sitting in there. I think there's also something about having to recognise that childhood trauma has an impact on how our bodies work. There's those amazing adverse childhood experiences studies that show us that if you've had a lot of childhood trauma and you haven't had help to kind of process that, that you are much more at risk of physical conditions, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, even early death. And so the trauma is physically sitting in our bodies. It even changes our chromosomes what they call the sort of telomere part of our chromosomes that is responsible for our cells turning over gets damaged. So it actually shortens our life potentially. Now, I'm not saying that these things can't be changed because they can, but there's even things like your immune function can be affected. So people get more autoimmune diseases. I think this is often linked to why people might have things like fibromyalgia, that's kind of body pain or chronic fatigue these are all body based but you know because I feel things very much in my body and you know just just have done for the last sort of eight years but and then that's sort of been getting better slowly but it's interesting because as I heard you talking I remember when I first started looking at trauma and I remember thinking now now this 
probably slightly takes us back to the point we were saying where people are a bit scared to look at it or they don't like looking at it. But I sort of realised, I mean, it, it was fascinating, maybe a little bit sad, well, it was very sad actually, that I realised I was kind of stuck in traumatic responses and feelings most of the time. And that's quite a scary thing because I looked at myself and I thought, wow, gosh, I mean, you're, you're not really living in the present all understandably you're just being constantly triggered yeah pretty much all the time and then I started looking at other people and I thought well god I mean they're kind of constantly triggered probably a lot of the time and that that's quite an overwhelming thing for people to think of that they're perhaps not you know leading their lives they're sort of potentially often in a trauma hijack I like the way you've put that and I'd say the first thing is that as soon as you realise that's happening, you're starting to get out of what we often think about as kind of trauma time, Mm. where you get stuck. It's a kind of closed system where you're just still in that moment or those moments of the past. And to be able to stand back and look and go, ah, okay, that's what's going on, means you've already got one foot now in the present. But it's so classical of trauma, and I think... It's one of the really tricky things because you do have to first of all notice it. And I think what you also said really captured me. You said it's also sad. And that's the trouble. Once you notice it, then you have to start grieving for what's happened. And I think there's a whole load of stuff that everyone always goes on about trauma processing, which I think sounds very scientific and wonderful, but I think it's about grief. I think we've got to remember what happened not be reliving it and then we've got to grieve for what happened that's all those awful big sort of feelings of sadness and rage and uh, And fury really connect exactly exactly and it reminds me one of the things i think we've got to say about the body as well is that some people are completely disconnected from their body Mm. and they have to be and that's, you know, that's a really hard place to be. But that is also that the body is so completely involved in trauma that you've just got to cut off from it. You know, it's funny. I used to call it my magic power. And I've never told anyone this. But when I first went for my auditions to do the show Pop Idol, mm-hmm. but I would actually do it in other situations as well. I would literally disappear myself. Obviously, yeah. I'd still be there. But yeah. I would just disappear myself and I would actually just leave my body. Yeah. What a skill, hey? Well, what a skill. But I, I think I learned that for years. But, you know, obviously when I was doing it in my early 20s or let's say through social phobia, being to parties or things like that, I wasn't yeah. equating it with trauma. I was just thought it was a bit of a, you know, <laughs> just a bit of a sort of thing that I could do. But I'd learned it for years to do that. So how do people, we've talked a bit, haven't we, about the power of grief and grieving, helping the healing process for complex PTSD. We've touched on medication. How else can people find their way through something that is really complex? I mean, if anyone's read Pete Walker's book, I mean, that's a complex thing in itself. <laughs> it is. It's true. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm still reading it to this day because I still find new things. Absolutely. And, you know, we could go into all of the different ways that people talk about this, but I kind of end up feeling like it's one big answer to this, which is I think that people heal through relationships because what we know trauma does, and again, Judith Herman describes this beautifully, it causes disconnection from others. And 
we hear that in the way that I described complex PTSD and those problems in relationships. It is a relational trauma. It's a feeling at its worst that you are on your own with what's happened. And we know that trust is a huge problem. It's a kind of often linked to a feeling that there's been betrayal as a part of the trauma. Someone has let me down. There's something terrible that's happened and I haven't been protected or this has occurred. So trust is a big problem. And the only way you can work on that is through relationships. The only way to really be able to think about and remember what's happened to you is to have a trusted person who can help you do that and to stay in your body and to feel those feelings. So for me, healing is all about finding the relationship or relationships that allow you to do it. And then all the different stuff about different modalities or different ways of working. I think that's what works best for each individual. But it's kind of, you know, acknowledging that actually we're all made to socially connect. And this is part of why we often talk about it as attachment trauma, because mm. it's that difficulty, isn't it, of being able to feel that we can find someone who we can be safe with again after we've been traumatised. Well, it's an awful thing. There's a desperation to connect with people, but then there's a terror of connecting. Yeah. So that in itself brings out a sort of frozen, helpless response. That's definitely yes. something that I found one of the hardest things and took the longest was yeah. to trust again and also acknowledge that there's another part of me that is terrified of that. And I think to acknowledge that for others, you know, and seeing that in others is very important. Absolutely. And I thought when you mentioned social phobia earlier, I think that might be part of what we're talking about, that being around people and having to engage with people becomes really frightening when you a feeling you can't trust them. You're not sure what's going to happen. You feel like something terrible might happen again, but you can't even really name it. And there's maybe all this shame and, and low self-worth. And why would you then be able to connect with someone if there's all that stuff going on? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's noticing, you know, often we say to people, well, go on, just do that and change your <laughs> thinking and do this. But Maybe it brings us right back to the beginning. And, and, and actually, I think one of the first things we, you said last time we spoke, which is that, you know, looking at what's happened to someone, not what's wrong with someone. If you've got a rescue dog that's been beaten mm. by its owner for a year, you wouldn't be surprised if the rescue dog was nervous around people. Beautifully put. And, you know, I think that's a part of what I was thinking. That's also a way of trying to challenge an idea that somehow we could find some quick magic fix for this because we wouldn't expect the rescue dog to suddenly after I don't know one kind of intervention be better the next day we all know it's going to take time and patience and love and compassion and kindness and yet somehow we don't think that all of those things are going to be required to help people heal Let's just, you know, put them into a group for 12 sessions and that should be enough for them. How can that possibly be true? It can't. And sort of as, as ever, it's often left to people on the peripheries, you know, and, mm. and their generosity and understanding to try and help people. I think it's important to say, you know, your waiting list at the Tavistock is long. That doesn't mean people shouldn't go on it, but, you know, it's long. Yeah. We know that mental health in its entirety is is underfunded 
So if someone's listening to this and thinking, oh, I, I, you know, I, I wonder if this is what I've got and they're connecting to it. I mean, we've mentioned the sort of overarching element of healing, which is relational, either with a therapist or, you know, some people just find the right partner, don't they, sometimes? And that yeah. can be it. Or the right friend. I know there's sort of meetup groups that you can go to that are free or sometimes you give a pound for trauma or, you know, are there things that people can do while they're waiting for professional help? Mm. There's a lot that they can do. And I suppose there is something that we are trying to say, first of all, about knowing that their journey might not be an easy one to find the help that they need. And it might take quite a lot of perseverance and persistence. And I think there's also a lot of work to be done by people like me from the inside trying to really challenge the limited resources that the NHS has. But I think that whilst people are taking that journey and trying to find the right way, they can start with finding out more about trauma because the more that they can understand about it, the better. Now, that might be hard to do on your own and you might feel that you need to have someone to help you look at what's too triggering and what's not. Personally, I find that sometimes rather than reading, to listen to audible books can be more helpful. And one really lovely audible book that I think can be good for people to read is the Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey What Happened to You book, which is a really gentle way of starting to understand why trauma has the impact that it does. I think listening to these kinds of podcasts can be really helpful if people can bear to. So finding out more and starting to talk to people and listening to that can be great. Trying to just sort of look after your body is a really important thing with everything we've been saying about what goes on in trauma with your body. It's going to be really important to try and look at what your diet is. Think about things like a regular sleep routine, even if you're really struggling with sleep, maybe even more so. But there is something as well about some really simple things like exercise. Exercise has been shown to really help in relation to that hyperarousal. It also leads to a new neurotransmitter called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. That gets produced more when you exercise, and that is something that helps us grow new brain cells. So it helps us potentially create new pathways for doing things differently. And one really good way that BDNF gets released is through gardening. There's something about being in touch with the soil, but also in contact with nature. So those kind of really simple things can help a lot. And sometimes just getting yourself a bit more of a routine and making sure that you're kind of doing something each day so you can distract yourself and maybe try and get a bit out of that trauma time. I think the other thing, and I know this is a really big ask, but it was you know, part of what you were touching on, is to think about small steps to improve your social connection. Because if you're waiting to get therapy, you're still trying to find therapy and finding the right one for you, then if you are working on having a little bit more social support, a little bit more connection, that's going to make it much better when you get into therapy. And it might be just about kind of doing a walking group where you don't actually talk to anyone very much, but you're just having that bit of connection. There's some really interesting research on things around things like Tai Chi and yoga and Pilates, anything where you're learning breathing and you're trying to kind of slow your body down 
can be great, but you also have to look out sometimes for some people it also reactivates things. So try them and see if that's good for you or not. I loved our chat last time. I've loved our chat even more this time. Well, so have I, Will. Thank you very much for having me back. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Joe Stubbley is actually, even the name Joe Stubbley is nice to say, isn't it? It's like Joe Stubbley, like mozzarella is lovely to say, Joe Stubbley. And she's as nice as her name is to say. And very clever, actually. Passionate, smart. I'm going to use the word a little bit of a maverick, which I like. I like a maverick. Yeah, let us know how you found that conversation. I thought it was really packed full of good information, as ever. And as if by magic, the letters have appeared in front of me. And here they are. Hey, Will, I had to drop you a message after listening to the episode on forest bathing. It's another forest bather. Has that been our most favourite episode, I wonder? I've been inspired to take up gardening as a way to reconnect with nature and give back. I heard you love gardening too. I do. Any favourite plants? I love a bracken, to be honest. Huge fan of a bracken. Uh, slightly maligned and uh, very varied. And uh, can't kill brackens. And how interesting you bring up gardening because Joe just said that can help, you know, as a way of uh, calming yourself down. Hey, Will, I just had to message you after the hypnotherapy episode. Honestly, I used to think hypnosis was all about making people cluck like chickens, but your guest really opened my eyes. To its therapeutic side, it's like a mind spa session. Can't wait to try it out. Well, there we go. A lot of people like that one. Although not adverse to being made to think I'm a chicken. Hey, Will. I like there's a lot of hays, aren't there? Hey, Will. In fact, they're all hey, Wills. There's been none for you this week, Amy. I'm sorry. I know. Hey, Will. Your podcast is my go-to when I need a little pick-me-up. And the episode on acupuncture was just what the doctor ordered. I've always been curious about alternative therapies. You guys broke down acupuncture really well. I'm booking my first session ASAP. We'll go to Gerard Kite Clinic. Thanks for being my wellness gurus. There we go. That's for you, Amy. That's the two of us. And the final, hey, Will, I was diagnosed with ADHD a few years back and it's been a roller coaster journey ever since. I'm sure it has. And uh, thanks for getting in touch. And you say the episode on ADHD really resonated with me and gave me hope. It's like finding a tribe that just gets it. That makes me happy. Thanks for getting in touch. As ever, email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at the Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at the Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Next week is codependency. So we're going to be breaking that down and talking all about that. Until then, take care. Goodbye. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.